how we seek to refine the language we use so we don't end up with another ambiguous sustainable fashion is absolutely vital. So that media are not confused, so that the readers of publications are not confused, and ultimately how the consumer is not confused or hoodwinked into buying the latest new version of sustainability. Welcome to the Fashion Forum, a series brought to you by the British Fashion Council, aimed at creating positive change and highlighting the relationship between the creative industries, celebrating not only fashion designers, but the broader creative community. I am Aditi Meyer, a content creator and activist, and today the host of today's episode. My start in sustainability began after learning about the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh in 2013, and what followed was my shift in the relationship to the industry. Rather than arbitrary fashion trends, I was on a meditation on the politics of labor, the disproportionate impact of fashion on communities of color worldwide, to unpacking and reimagining the colonial history and present of fashion. A lot has changed for the sustainable fashion movement since 2013, notably its exponential growth in surpassing a fringe alternative market to becoming a center point of conversation for brands and the larger industry. However, we're also seeing the growth of the buzzwordification of sustainability, So although critical mass is necessary, how do we avoid the co-opting of sustainability as simply a marketing tactic, a conscious collection, rather than a central pillar of how the industry operates? In other words, how do we ensure that we root our sustainability in action? Joining me today are two very dynamic guests, both leaders in their own right in the sustainable fashion space. But I am going to ask them to introduce themselves and answer why fashion, aka why did you choose fashion or why do you love fashion, how fashion, how did you get into the industry? Josephine, would you like to go first? How did you get in the industry? I'm the founder of a startup called Sojo, which is basically trying to modernize these age-old clothing alteration and repair industry. We do that in two ways, both with a consumer-facing app where you can book what you need done to your clothes and we use local makers to fix and fit your clothes to you. And also we're actually now working with e-com fashion brands to help them embed more circularity and sustainability into their business models with tailoring and repair. So that aside, I got into it. Mainly, I actually think from a sense of wanting to make a change. And that actually could have been a lot of different things, fashion and outside of fashion. So I was also really interested in food waste. And I was also really interested in plastic pollution. But it just so happened that during university, I really acutely felt the problem of sizing when it came to clothing. So I was shopping secondhand, kept finding pieces that I loved that weren't right for me uh, when it came to fit. But then when I got them tailored, the whole experience was like something out of the 1800s. And I just thought the whole thing needs to be modernized. And if it is, then maybe younger people will increasingly engage with the slow fashion behavior of tailoring and repair and clothes that are made to fit and made to last. And I think one thing that was really key for me was understanding that sustainability often comes out of friction with convenience and price. And so with Sojo, what I was really excited about was making repair and tailoring incredibly easy, incredibly convenient, so that actually it's the chosen option instead of buying new. I think fashion chose me in many ways. When I got involved in the space, I wasn't someone with the quintessential passion for fashion, but 
I was interested in the multitude of issues the fashion industry touched on, gender, labor, identity, and culture. Why do I love fashion? Visual culture. Before I ever owned the title of a fashion blogger, I owned the title of a photographer. Fashion is so deeply rooted in informing our visual culture and culture at large, and there are two narratives that are possible within that. Right now, the dominant fashion narrative is rooted in overconsumption. I often say that the project of fast fashion is to alienate us from the roots of our products. However, fashion for me is a vehicle to unpack our relationship to land and labor. How do we cultivate a relationship to land that acknowledges planetary boundaries, farmer and peasant movements, indigenous varieties of textiles and more? And for labor, how do we create a more intimate system where we know our makers and celebrate the myriad of artisan practices throughout the globe and truly celebrate the labor behind the label? So that's a little bit about my story. George? My name is George McPherson. I run a small public relations and communications consultancy in Brooklyn, in New York, working with a number of fashion brands in the sustainability space and a number of nonprofits uh, in the climate and impact space. How did I get into fashion? I was working at university in Leeds. My public relations degree was something that was giving me a couple of opportunities, but nothing had really felt all that exciting. I'd learned a lot of theory. I'd done a lot of work experience in various different consumer public relations uh, agencies in the Northeast of England, where I'm from. But I was also working at a bar in Leeds uh, with a girlfriend of mine who I remain really close with. She was one of the first people I met who had made their way down to London from Leeds. And she was working in fashion and being assisting a stylist who at the time was working with Christina Aguilera. All that sounded very exciting to me. She connected me to two or three small but powerful PR agencies representing young and vibrant talent, such as Jonathan Saunders, Mario Schwab, Richard Nichol, uh, Miedem Kirchhoff, P.T. Jensen. A lot of names that are perhaps familiar to some of the listeners and perhaps so established they may not be so remembered now. It was the kind of talent that the BFC, the British Fashion Council and Fashion East really got behind. And it was a really beautiful and deeply immersive community of creatives, talent, stylists, editors. I had all these interviews lined up in one day, so I got the train down to London and um, met all the founders, didn't get any of the jobs. Uh, I took a job up in Newcastle and waited for a month or two by the phone, being told that perhaps someone would get back in touch with me. Then uh, a few months later, I did get that call and I was offered a junior position, uh, starting salary of about £10,000, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And I took it. And it was a wonderful introduction to really starting at the very, very bottom of the industry, working with all of the assistants who are now editors around the world. And it's been a beautiful ride. I love that. Thank you both so much for sharing your story. So sustainability has become a hot topic in the fashion industry. And numerous studies claim that millennials and more so Gen Z consumers are more environmentally conscious and more inclined to spend on brands with eco-credentials. So what does sustainability in fashion mean to you, George? I feel like for the last six years, my consultancy has been somewhat based 
on sustainable fashion for whatever that might mean to the beholder, whether it's the consumer and how they read into it, whether it's the designer and how they create a framework behind their business or an editor who perhaps sees themselves as a sustainability correspondent or reporter. I think perhaps that we might all agree that sustainability in fashion has become somewhat of a pariah as a term by which anyone could try to understand what specifically that garment does. How is that thing sustainable? And I'll repeat this until someone tells me to stop, but I actually feel really complicit in that. My consultancy being one that has helped the careers of emerging sustainable fashion designers and really been in close communication with many of the people who work in this relatively small sector, each of us having a responsibility around how that term has been amplified, magnified. It's an interesting one to sit with as a PR consultant, because how we generate media support for those brands and businesses who are seeking to do good, yet perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, would and should we have used that term as often as we have, seeking to attach an editor's interest to a brand or a particular line of clothing, and then seeing the echoes out in the industry, because that becomes the popular term, that becomes the searched for term. The lack of clarity around it, the mudging of waters, perhaps as a brand and myself had initially gone full throttle with using such ambiguous terms like this in general, just to describe a process or a technique, a level of supply chain transparency or innovation and essentially empowering the term sustainable fashion, but then disempowering the customer's ability to discern truly what they're being told. So I sit with this often and it has become a place where for me, knowing other PR consultants and communicators in the industry and knowing many editors, we talk about this often of how to begin to break back down that same term. So for me, if someone says sustainable fashion, I have for the last three years or so sought to get into the weeds a little more. And if I say it myself, I have no problem also backtracking and seeking to clarify what I actually mean, which I think is the important part of this. I know that I have to for my own conscience and my own sense of hoped for intention of clarifying for others because I have the ability and perhaps the now foresight to see that every time I use that word and not seek to clarify. I'm just complicating this conversation further. In some ways, the idea of being a PR consultant to me now or a communications consultant is also being a guardian of how these words can be perceived. In a case in point with regenerative fashion, for instance, which I know that we've all touched upon in various forms, particularly over the last few years, does regenerative fashion as a term and as a product really exist? Or is it fashion created with regenerative processes? And I think just in that tiny difference, we get a chance to really begin to pull out what it is that the process might be and give people a better idea of what people might actually be buying. Having worked with a fair amount of brand launches, that I'm honored to say really do incorporate that work as Aditi knows, how we seek to refine the language we use so we don't end up with another ambiguous sustainable fashion is absolutely vital so that media are not confused so that the readers of publications are not confused and ultimately how the consumer is not confused or hoodwinked into buying the latest new version of sustainability without knowing the difference between one thing or another yeah i think there's so much nuance to it yeah i completely agree with you i think this goes into that sphere of the buzzwordification of sustainability and regeneration. I really think that there is such a lack of language. And I think that 
the reason there's this unification of both sort of like the really big fast fashion companies who are coming out with sustainable collections and then authentically circular brands who are a lot smaller and they are actually somewhat way further down the sustainability line is that there's no in-between language and also there's no quantification as well. And as someone who loves maths in general, I just really feel like that's something that is really missing in the industry, which is like hard data. And that is something that although maths is maybe inaccessible to some people, it's just something that's very tangible to understand if we had a sliding scale of things or if when there is a sustainability collection that we actually know the percentage of that brand's items that are that collection. So if on the billboard you're talking about the conscious collection, is it 0.001% of you know what your company does? And I think just putting numbers and having more nuanced language is really important in the sustainable fashion conversation in general. Who's responsible for creating that language and ensuring that data is there or even starting to gather that data? Who knows? But I just know it's something that's crucially missing because we use one word to describe so many different things. And I think that's where so much opaqueness comes from. Do you think there needs to be more accountability measures on the industry end? And how do we balance that with sustainability storytelling? Should that be led by brands? Or how do you think we should go about that conversation? I think if there's real authenticity behind the story, it shouldn't be the thing that's being bought. It should allow for a customer to engage more and more closely with a business. I think that businesses have such a responsibility to offer complete clarity and transparency. And the truth is, I know I've been doing parts of this work for the last six years. It's not happening fast enough for the brands that really aren't invested. And those are the ones we have to be focused on. So where regulation might come in or businesses set themselves up to have to hold themselves accountable and then allow it to be a fun way of engaging and also a fun way of informing. I think that's the part for me that feels so important with businesses is that they should be a window into information and education. Clearly, not enough of that information and education is happening elsewhere. So the really good brands should be setting their stall by seeing themselves as informers and educators. Yeah, and I think that marks the shift of the language where we talk about consumers versus citizens. And it could also mark a shift of brands as, you know, obviously places of consumption, but also information hubs, which I think marks a very critical departure from what we've seen this far within the fashion industry. That has me thinking a lot about the role of social media, where everyone kind of is their own information hub. And social media can be used as a tool to connect like-minded individuals and bring key information to people's attention and power movements even. But On the flip side, you can argue that it can create FOMO and drive consumerism. Josephine, we're both part of a generation that has pretty much grown up on the internet. So how do you tackle that conflict when navigating the internet? Social media is categorically the biggest driver for hyper, hyper consumerism that we've really got used to. And I think for me personally, that natural sort of really unfollowing of accounts to do with fashion or somewhat there's some sort of selling that goes on with them. That was a really big step on my journey a few years ago. But then when I think about brands, I think about Sojo ultimately creating something circular If I push repair, repair, repair every day and I'm being like, repair your clothes, repair your clothes, the more orders we do, the better it is. And that's a really exciting thing to be a part of, especially even when it comes to thinking about scale. It's like we want to scale as fast as possible. We want to be a high growth company because the more we do that, the more impact we have. And that's kind of a really exciting thing. So for us personally, as a brand, we don't have qualms 
when it comes to pushing. Um, but I do understand that there is sort of like a really big difficulty with, um, yeah, consumerism and even with sustainable brands pushing purchases. Again, there's a lot of problems with it, but I also think that there's space for different parts of circular and sustainable fashion, whether that be pushing secondhand clothes that need to be bought or pushing upcycled clothes or pushing rental or pushing sort of, yeah, thrifting or swapping. All of it is still based around consumption, but it's just a more mindful and conscious way to do it. And I do think there needs to be space for that because we can't entirely rely on fashion being just you know, regenerative, maybe not ever buying clothes, you know, walking around naked, that that can't be it. But there has to be space for different approaches to it. And, and we just have to be mindful that that is just the journey towards where we want to go. One thing I'm really taking away from this conversation thus far is this idea of show not tell when it comes to the fashion landscape. And this idea that sustainability needs to be embedded in the DNA of fashion culture rather than a 0.1% capsule collection, like you mentioned. For me, I think it really builds on this idea that sustainable fashion exists because, as you said, the industry is inherently unsustainable. So how do we move towards a future where we don't need the qualifier of sustainable fashion? And hopefully the dominant fashion model is one that is not rooted in exploitation and extraction and very obviously going beyond planetary boundaries and limits, which we know at this critical juncture that we're in for people on the planet, we can't continue in that direction. So we've talked about the responsibility of corporations. And when it comes to the individual, Smaller actions do have some impact, but ultimately the biggest power is in the hands of governmental institutions. I can speak for myself when I say that one of my biggest shifts in my journey in sustainable fashion was rooting my action within local communities, particularly the garment worker community here in Los Angeles, where I'm from. I personally believe that we've been told a very singular narrative of garment worker victimhood rather than resistance. And getting to know the garment worker community in LA and documenting their stories has fundamentally shifted where I think we need to place our attention. I think we need movement building from the bottom up in a worker-centric capacity. One of the recent developments that have come out of Los Angeles is the Garment Worker Protection Act. So for some context, in Los Angeles, the second largest industry is the cut and sew garment industry. And the number shows that it employs upwards of 50,000 individuals, which is probably a gross underestimation of the true scale of the industry, because the industry is also quite tied to a workforce that is largely undocumented. And so I think this is where understanding identity and larger systems is so, so important because Los Angeles is an industry that has been rife with labor exploitation. Up until this past year, it was normal to have the piece rate in Los Angeles, meaning that, you know, workers are being paid per piece they make as opposed to the hour. A piece rate that was often as low as two to three cents, meaning workers are making as little as five to six dollars an hour. And you couple this with the culture where when workers attempted to speak up, their employers were often threatening them with deportation and calling ICE. However, there was a multiple year legislative battle that garment workers led in creating the Garment Worker Protection Act. And I'm happy to say that it did pass. 
and it did a few things. It eliminated the piece rate. It created more accountability measures between retailer, manufacturer, and brand and factory. And it also put more funds in the hand of garment worker restitution and things like that. And I have noticed that there's been an uptick in the amount of legislation around fashion and sustainability around the world. George, I know that you were involved with the proposed New York Fashion Sustainability and Social Accountability Act, which is the first of its kind in the U.S. So can you talk to us about that? I think what's interesting, and for me, this is the the foundation of this conversation through, through my experience, that every time progressive legislation like this is proposed, not only do we then have the hope that that legislation is passed, but critical to the conversation we actually just had, the vocabulary changes by which people understand their place in the citizen consumer society they're in. For me, when Maxine and those involved in crafting this proposed legislation even came to me about the idea of what we were going to do back in January, I was like, that sounds tough. And I was like, how do we go about this? And yet I'd also seen the success of SB62 and the work that had gone into it and the advocacy and the campaigning across media, across brands, across advocacy groups, grassroots organizations, and came into contact with a part of this, which is here is how we make changes by working together, by appealing to that one part of whichever cause we're related to and seeing it echo out amongst society for how it can affect change. And so it takes away that thing of, okay, I can only buy this product and somehow wear my heart on my sleeve and show that I have some sort of care beyond myself and my immediate community. So watching SB62 and the work that went into it and the incredible diligent operation largely formed by women who felt that enough was enough and there is time to create this action, seeing the work that has been done with New Standard Institute and the host of advocacy groups who are involved in the New York Fashion Act, and then so far to look at the Fabric Act, which has just been proposed, and seeing in all of these the steps that are moving along to create a sense of unison in action. We're told all the time to vote with our dollar, and I absolutely don't believe it. The way we create change is making noise, adding our voice to something that is outside of the consumer operation. Because to be honest, we're just being tricked if we're being told to vote with our dollar. I think it works sometimes. But the idea that we are only what our dollar says we are is complete hypocrisy. We have to look at what our values are, how to affect change systematically through adding our voice and urgency to the causes that are coming to us that we can be a part of, whether it's on a local level or on the federal level with the Fabric Act. Similar goings on in Europe with extended producer responsibility. All of this is about how we get to create change together. One thing I often say is when we fixate on the singular narrative of voting with their dollar, we limit not only how we could engage with this movement, but who can engage with this movement. When I first entered the sustainable fashion conversation, I felt like there was very clear erasure about the reality of price points and who could engage with sustainable fashion on a purely consumer level. Obviously, we know they're secondhand and things like that, but I think these are very fundamental conversations because it shifts 
our relationship to sustainable fashion from a narrative that often puts all of the onus on the individual to limit their power to purchasing power. And I think that truly needs to change. And that's when I think this conversation becomes more of a movement, when we understand our power as communities, as citizens. And George, you mentioned the Fabric Act, which I wanted to expand on for our listeners. So the Fabric Act, for those that are not familiar, is essentially the Garment Worker Protection Act in California taken to a federal level. So the key tenets of the Fabric Act include fair wages, joint liability provision, so brands and retailers alongside manufacturing partners are accountable for wage theft, transparency measures, and I think the main part that kind of defines the Fabric Act is investment in domestic garment manufacturing. And I think that lends itself to the conversation of it's not necessarily about bringing production back to the U.S. as much as it's about creating a culture of accountability and transparency and justice within the supply chain. Josephine, do you have any thoughts you want to share about the role of governments or policy when it comes to the sustainable fashion conversation? I am really excited by some of the rumblings that we are hearing in Europe around the Right to Repair Act and things like that. But I think that the people are so impassioned and are so incredible. And yet I just don't feel the reception is there. I mean, you all you have to do is look at magazines to know how much consumers want to read or talk about sustainability, or to even look at the brands and look realize how much it is on the agenda. And they are thinking about it, and they're putting budgets towards it. And all their collections are, you know, the marketing's going towards it, whether it is 0.1% of their collection, it's 90% of their marketing budget. So It's obviously there and we all are aware of the wider climate crisis and yet it's not filtering up enough. Hearing the good stuff really keeps me going, but I also, I just feel like kind of with the sustainable collections, it's never enough and it's never fast enough and we're getting there, but I really think more could be done and we just have to keep pushing for that and also keep staying positive. Yeah, I completely agree. So... Mm. We've come to the end of the conversation, but before we go, we have all shared how and why fashion. And now I'd like to know now fashion, AKA what does fashion mean now or what is the future of fashion? And I'll go first. And I think one idea that's coming to mind as a result of this dialogue is sustainability being tied to decentralization. That might sound like a tangent, but I think it's this idea of we can't have strongholds of power or certain figureheads that hold all of the power. And if you look at the dominant fashion model with fast fashion, I think, you know, there is a centralization of power with the CEOs, how much funds they have, how much their garment workers are being paid. And I think the ideal future of fashion is one that is decentralized and Instead of mass production, we have production by the masses, but you can also apply that idea to where power is held, you know, it's among mm. the masses. I love that. I just imagine if, yeah, all the profits were shared throughout the whole, throughout the whole supply chain, throughout everyone. And I, I love that idea. That's fantastic. It's so interesting you say that at DC. There's a young man, Peter Dupont, and he created with a group of others this brand that he launched earlier this year called Andel Co-op or Andel Cooperative. And it is his version of creating just what you said. And it's so vital to think about a younger generation of designers who are really taking that to heart. 
how they're exploring the idea of developing a business from the ground up rather than creating the same business as always, but maybe there's some sustainably sourced textile in there. The sustainable textile is less important in this regard than how the business is actually set up to be a cooperative that helps feed literally, but also feed the growth of a business, but only when it aligns with the other values that we're talking about here, which is just so essential and so heartening to me that this young group of people are like, you know what, this has existed before. We understand that there is a framework here we can use and create something that inspires positive change through perhaps the purchases that are being made because it's the benefit to all as opposed to just the benefit to me as the brand owner. I love that. Yeah. So Josephine, would you like to go next? For me, fashion now is hopefully at an inflection point. We have had a lot of movement, a lot of interest in this space where fashion is, it's time for it to change. And I think I only believe that we are just about to take off on the future of fashion, which I think is going to be made up of an amalgamation of things, but where each pillar and each vertical is being reimagined. I'd like to believe startups have a, a place to fix in that in terms of they're really about disruption. They're really about flipping things and doing things differently. But I think like you were saying, it starts right at the beginning, like right, right at the beginning. And it goes also to the end. I mean, we haven't spoken much about waste or waste colonialism even. But I think throughout the entire cycle of, of a garment, I think there's going to be a reimagined process. I think the future of fashion should be exactly like Josephine's business. I'm incredibly envious and I'm full of admiration for what you set up. And I think it's so important that everyone gets to have that opportunity to really learn from the model that you're creating. I would like to think the future of fashion will be equitable, safe, fair, and underpinned by at the very least neutral and at the very best positive regenerative impact. And that regenerative impact, not just being on the environment, not just being on the people, on the whole. I think it's a very realistic truth that there are many, many people who are held by forces much more dominant than these, and be it an economic reality of hardship and poverty that prevents people from reaching those goals uh, as consumers or businesses, or that truly consumerism itself has got the better of a large part of global society. And I don't want to sound like this is the negative part of the conversation, but I think the wake-up call has to be around something so much deeper than just fashion itself and more to who we are as people mm. and that mm. level of interconnectedness that we absolutely have to feel both to each other and the planet and not even seeing those two things as being anything other than exactly the same is vital. There is so much to build on, but thank you both so much for joining me in this conversation. I honestly had so much fun. I am Aditi Meyer, and you have been listening to the BFC Fashion Forum. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a friend. And if you want to discuss further, drop your comments at British Fashion Council on Instagram. And one last note, you can also hear from Josephine and a whole host of others at the British Fashion Council Institute of Positive Fashion Forum. So Go ahead and click the link in the show notes for more information. 